Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. Well, today we're talking about the two big C words, words that I think make the world uh, interesting and fun. And I'm talking about creativity and comedy. We'll talk with the 74-day Jeopardy champion, now New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings, in just a moment. His new book is called Planet Funny. And obviously he's covering comedy. And in the second half of the show, we'll hear from Alan Gannett, who wanted to know what makes some ideas soar and others sink. So he set out on a journey to discover patterns that lead to creative sense success. And uh, if you're feeling blocked, stifled, or uh, don't think you have a creative bone in your body, Alan Gannett says you're just doing it wrong. So stay tuned to find out more about that. All right, coming up first, uh, as I said, we're going to be talking with Ken Jennings, his new book is called Planet Funny. A um, couple of things I didn't know about uh, Ken. Um, I knew he'd been on Jeopardy. I didn't know quite how successful he'd been. 74-game victory worth two two and a half million, just over two and a half million dollars. Uh, his book, Brainiac, about his Jeopardy adventures was critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, as were his follow-up books, Maphead and Because I Said So. And uh, he's the host of the Omnibus podcast, and he lives right here in Seattle. So, Ken Jennings, welcome. Hey, Vicky, Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And the full title of your book is called Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. And uh, so we're going to look at some of that during the course of the next 30 minutes or so. Um, you say today, in a clear sign of evolution totally sliding off the rails, our most coveted trait is not strength or productivity or even innovation, but being funny. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about why you were interested in this topic to the extent that you wanted to write a whole book about it. Well, I've been a fan of comedy my whole life. I was always the class clown in elementary school, and uh, you know I have very fond memories in the 80s of staying up late to watch Letterman and Saturday Night Live and all these you know, things that cracked me up that I knew were kind of edgy and my parents would not get into. So, I, I, you know, that, that really feels like a, a marker of adulthood when you find your, your comedy culture. So the book, I hope, is a love letter to comedy. But in recent years, when I think about jokes, I just think about how many of them there are, how things that were once serious pillars of modern life, like the media and advertising and politics, um, everything from food to architecture to sports, has gotten funny. Every ad has to be funny. Um, it's deep down into little tiny places. Church marquees now have puns instead of Bible verses. Airline safety videos are not scary pamphlets. They're, uh, they're elaborate and wacky comedy sketches. It just seems like nowadays everything has to be stuffed with jokes. And I noticed it was not actually making me laugh more. I was, <laughs> I was not having more fun with the more jokes. What's wrong with me? And, and so you set out to write this, but some of you, you've done quite a bit on the history of comedy, uh, which is really interesting to see how it's changed over the years. Um, but you say it, our culture really adopts this and, and our comedy is central to who we are. It defines us. 
And, you know, coming from Britain, obviously, to America, there's a very different, uh, very different uh, comedic value there uh, on some levels, too. So um, talk to us a little bit about where you began with the book itself. Well, I thought the history was important just because I wanted to convince people that comedy does evolve. I think people who haven't thought seriously about comedy might assume that it's just the same stuff forever. It's, you know, people in Aristophanes' day thought it was funny to laugh at the king or to watch a guy slip on a banana peel. And that's more or less how comedy is today. And there are some commonalities. For whatever reason, comedy evolved in our brains, and it still does some of the same things that, that elicited the amusement reflex 5,000 years ago, I assume. But it's also changing quite a bit. Uh, as you mentioned, jokes are part of a culture. The same kind of uh, dry wit or drollery or wordplay that makes a, a British person laugh um, might strike uh, an American as uh, being too tryhard. You know, we kind of like a lazier, more naturalistic voice in our comedy, or historically at least we have. And so comedy changes depending on who's telling the jokes and what the culture is, and the comic sensibility evolves. It's a product of youth culture. We need novelty. You know, you don't want to laugh. You can't laugh at the same thing you laughed at five times last week. It wears off. Right. And you definitely don't want to be laughing at the same kind of joke that you feel like your parents or your grandparents might have been laughing about. Antiquity is the enemy of comedy. Right, right. And certainly over the last uh, 10, 15 years with social media, it's the last 10 years really with Twitter, things have certainly changed on a comedic level. Uh, you know, sometimes I look on there and some of the comments are quite brutal, but they're also quite funny. Um, so how do you think that's impacted the way we look at comedy within our culture here? Twitter is probably what inspired me to write the book more than any other thing, because I didn't understand what it was for. And even when a publicist made me get on Twitter, I didn't understand <laughs> what it was like. Why does this exist? Oh, you do? <laughs> And, uh, but then I started to see there's at least one thing you can do in 140 characters. It's really good for one-liners, right? Like comedy is one of the only yeah. art forms, maybe apart from Japanese haiku, where brevity <laughs> is actually enforced. You know, the joke doesn't work if it's not the quickest turn, the quickest distance between two points. So Twitter bred this community of joke tellers, people quipping and riffing and, as you say, saying mean comments to each other in the replies. And it was famous comedians and gifted comedy writers but it was also just like regular, funny, random civilians joking along with them. And for a while, it kind of seemed like a utopia. But it started to break my brain. Just this idea that I had a rectangle in my pocket that was going to give me 200 good jokes a minute. It was just too much. I started to see the effects of having a super abundance of comedy, more than you could ever laugh at, more than you could ever take real pleasure in. And I just wasn't enjoying it as much and I wanted to I wanted to look at what it might do to our culture if everything is this stuff with jokes if people are getting their news from comedy shows if uh, if politicians have to pre-write zingers for debate um, if every ad has to be funny or people get angry letters um, this is the world we're living in now right well go back to what you're saying about um, you know we get our, our politics off Twitter too uh, a lot of the time off comedy and John Stewart, of course, they think was probably one of the foremost people in bringing that uh, to the platform, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that TV should do topical satire is actually a pretty new one. Like, it was born essentially in Great Britain with not necessarily the news in the 1960s. I remember. <laughs> and gradually spread across the Atlantic um, to Saturday Night Live and other places. And we saw, that, we saw the apotheosis of it, yeah, with John Stewart, where he was our Walter Cronkite. This was our moral authority, a guy doing silly puns mixed in with uh, 
actually telling us the news and doing, you know, serious commentary uh, on, you know, at least his social views. And a generation got used to getting their comedy from topical news satire shows, from Weekend Update and Jon Stewart and then Stephen Colbert. And now it's just a proliferation of it. Every late night show is, uh, is endless topical satire. Right. You talk a lot about various comedians, uh, you know, people we might have grown up with. And each generation, of course, has its own. Um, and I remember my parents laughing at that, not the nine o'clock news show. And also at Monty Python. Let's talk about Monty Python a bit and how you think that really influenced or changed comedy. Muddy Python is huge for sketch comedy in particular. Um, first of all, the absurdity of it, the idea that a joke could just be silly and the incongruity would never get resolved. It, you, we would never be explained to us why this man was walking in this silly way or um, why his name is this odd thing or what the joke is that's killing people. You know, that all these things might just be absurd and be left that way. And that's very much the voice of 20th century comedy that Monty Python has gifted to us. And then also just the speed of it, the Monty Python discovery that you don't actually have to come up with a great capper joke for the sketch, that you can just kind of move on to the next thing as soon as, you know, as soon as the idea is out there. Uh, and so that leads to the other big comedy increase of today, which is speed. Um, you know, these post-30 Rock sitcoms that might have, you know, three or four or five jokes a minute, you know, two or three times faster than the sitcoms we grew up with. I was looking at that. You have a chart in the book, uh, Father Knows Best, which I'm not familiar with because I, I wasn't here then. Um, but um, that had about two and a half laughs a minute. And now we're looking at an unbreakable uh, Kimmy Schmidt, which I'm also not familiar with. Uh, but we're looking at almost seven laughs a minute. So <laughs> we've definitely amped up the race there. Yeah, you can see the mathematics of it increasing because, again, people want novelty. They want to laugh at something that's more than the thing they were laughing at before. We have this process in our brains called the hedonic treadmill, where pleasurable, as we receive pleasurable stimuli, whether that's jokes or heroin, it doesn't matter, that becomes our new baseline, and we need more and more of that just to keep afloat. So we can't keep telling a sedate two and a half jokes a minute like they used to on Father Knows Best or these kind of silly 50s family sitcoms. Uh -huh. um, we demand more faster. And so uh, that's a good segue, talking about the brain, into something you, you talk about um, building a society on the sweetness of folly. And you, you mentioned neuroscientist Robert Provine, who spent his 30-year career studying the psychology of laughter. And his discovery, in short, was that everything we think we know about laughter is wrong. How so? Yeah, it's one of the most interesting bits of scholarship that's ever been done on humor or comedy because he actually observed it in the wild. He went to the mall, he stood on sidewalks, <laughs> he, went to, he went to food courts, and he watched he, he, his... Uh, his TAs or whoever took notes on people talking and actually marked up their speech with the laughter, like they were annotating Amazon Birdsong or something. It was anthropology. And he found that people do not really laugh at a joke the way we would imagine. Most laughter in conversation, first of all, it's done by the speaker, not the listener. Um, second, it almost never follows humor. And when it does, it generally follows just a mildly funny observation, nothing you'd actually want to remember to tell anyone later. Um, the, the humor, the laughter follows very specific rules. You know, there's a specific speed and a, you know, a certain number of pulses to the haws. We all essentially laugh biologically the same, but not at jokes. It's really more of a social lubricant. It's a way to show that, hey, we're all on the same side of this. We're having a non-threatening, fun conversation. This is how we keep things light. And it probably evolved from our primate ancestors doing the same thing, like, oh, we're, we're going to wrestle in the tree 
but this is not actual combat. We're just juveniles goofing around, and they so they do that uh, face, and that's where <laughs> laughter comes from. Right, and and he's you say laughter, in other words, may feel it, it may be deeply personal and involuntary, but it it's nearly always helping to order a social web that binds us together. Yeah, you see this in dating as well, where when people are asked what qualities they look for in a mate, sense of humor is always near the top of the list. That's just something that cements a relationship and a partnership. And evolutionarily, it might also be a very hard-to-fake indicator of intelligence. You can tell, ah, this is a fit mate because he or she uh, is obviously smart. They made the waiter laugh, and that's, that's not something you can fake. That's, that's a real sign of, uh, of intelligence and emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to take a quick break. Uh, my guest is Ken Jan- Jennings. His book is Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. And when we come back, Ken, I w- I'm going to ask you... Uh, if, if we're losing our sense of humor, are we getting too sensitive in today's world? You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay tuned. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800 800- Four five seven six six seven six. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Knowing your press can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to help you live well, live strong. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And I'm talking with Ken Jennings. He's a 70-day, 74-day Jeopardy champ and New York Times best-selling author of several books. We're talking today about his latest book, Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. And um, I want to ask, did you have fun writing this, Ken? I did. I mean, comedy is a joy. The, the challenge was the fact that I'm not actually a stand-up or a comedy writer. People know me from a game show, which is studiously unfunny. So I wanted to make sure I actually <laughs> knew my stuff. So there were years of research to make sure I actually knew what I was talking about if I'm going to... I'm going to do anthropology of comedy all the way back to Aristophanes. Right, right. So part of the premise of the book is that there's too much comedy, but I sometimes think we're actually losing our sense of humor. So um, 
give us your take on that. Yeah, this is a, an idea that gets batted around a lot lately today. But what if we're becoming so sensitive to certain topics or certain aspects of life that we're no longer able to laugh at them? Um, and, you know, my take is that what this does is it actually shows that we are realizing how important and serious humor is. Um, in the past, you know, if someone told an edgy joke about death or race or something uncomfortable, you know, they would be able to say, oh, oh, it's okay, I was just joking. And that would be an all-purpose alibi. And we felt like that was important for jokesters to have that because they were our truth-tellers. You know, it was like the, the fool in a Shakespearean play. He's right. the only one that can speak truth to power. What's changed now, first of all, is that we all have access to, to jokes. We're all joke-tellers now. You know, we all have our social media feeds, and we all have our little audiences where, you know, we've mastered the rhythms and the mechanics of humor as well. Uh, and second of all, I think we've realized that I'm just joking is not a catch-all alibi because it just invites a further discussion. Well, of course, Roseanne was just joking when she compared an Obama aide to a gorilla. But, you know, what are the effects of that joke? You know, what was she trying to accomplish? What does she think is humorous about that joke? What might the side effects be? And I think it's good that we're having those conversations. You know, Dave Chappelle famously left his sketch show because he was doing edgy material on race. And sometimes he would see a white audience laugh and he would think, are they really getting the social satire here? Or are they thinking that it's not ironic and there's just easy jokes about black people that can be laughed at here? Right. And he was worried enough about that that he walked off the show. And I think that's created a new age where we do take time to make sure we idiot-proof our jokes. Like, let's make sure this joke is not hack in any way. If, we're, if I'm going to talk about something important, if this joke is going to touch on a sensitive subject like race or or death, or, uh, you know, a social issue, immigration, or rape even, you know. Like, let's make sure we're on the right side of the joke. And I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about that because I think over the years, poli uh, comedians in, in uh, many ways have kind of held politicians accountable because they'll call them out on stuff. And um, where do you think it fits into politics to me, that's the scarier uh, development, just the fact that powerful institutions, governments, corporations have realized that jokes have power. You know, that used to be our way of keeping tabs on them. Right. And now, of course, you've got political candidates hiring joke writers to make sure they're funny in their stump speeches. And you've got advertisers making sure that, you know, hoping that people will buy the product that had the funnier ad and not necessarily the higher quality product. And uh, I think most importantly, you've got, um, uh, well, I lost my train of thought here. Uh, the, um, oh, you know, funny, powerful institutions. For example, the CIA, you know, the CIA now has a Twitter account where it does jokey, ironic tweets, and it manages its own image by being kind of a parody of a, of a funny, hip Twitter account. And those jokes about its own secrecy. And I, I guess the premise of it is that, look, it's the CIA. You know, it seems like they overthrow governments, but actually they're fun. So powerful <laughs> people have learned how to co-opt and commodify jokes so they can use them against us. And it's, uh, it's something to keep an eye on. There's a, um, I think also there's, um, I remember when I worked at City Core, it was the first real job I'd had because I always worked with my parents' business before. And I worked at City Core and we had this series of trainings uh, by John Cleese after he'd left Monty Python, of course. Mm. And um, 
they were hysterical because they're so funny. And you actually talk about those in, in your book. Um, but that's the, something about sitting there watching a dry training corporate video versus watching John Cleese say things that you really, really want to say to customers sometimes um, made it made you take a different look at things. So where do you think the, the place for humor is there? You know, you're absolutely right about how a comedic take can do things that a serious one will not. You know, it's why satire works. It allows for exaggeration. It kind of gets you on somebody's side. If they think, you're, if they think they're going to laugh, they'll listen to a new viewpoint. Um, somebody who might sleep through a corporate training video might actually pay attention to a funny John Cleese one because they know at least they'll get a laugh out of it. So it's a valuable tool in a lot of ways. Um, but what we saw, especially in the U.S. in the 1980s, is corporate humor becoming a huge management fad and corporations bringing in outside speakers to tell them how to liven up their day with laughter. Um, often companies would have a, a joke room at the office filled with, you know, Garfield paperbacks and Irma Bombeck books and all, you know, rubber chickens and chattering novelty teeth and all <laughs> kinds of silly comedy things. The idea that you could go there and laugh and unwind. So again, we see companies using jokes and using laughter to, uh, you know, to, to jolly along employees and, and, uh, and get their way. It's not a fad that lasted very long, thankfully, but I, I still have nightmares of working at one of these companies in the, in the mid-'80s when the Grouch Patrol might show up in the hall and say, you're not smiling, and do some <laughs> funny face or put a red clown nose on me or, or whatever the policy was at the time. It didn't actually improve humor to put the word corporate in front of it. No, no. And let's talk about the glass ceiling while we're talking about corporate because it definitely was the glass ceiling. It was, mm -hmm. it was definitely a male-dominated industry. We see a lot more females now. Um, you, you talk, share an interesting story in the book, I thought, about Mark Twain. Um, he was also around, his contemporary was Marietta Holly, who's almost forgotten. And, of course, Mark Twain isn't. But there was a huge difference between their personalities. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, I think people don't realize that Mark Twain was not the only frontier comedian of the, uh, the mid-19th century. They were called the Southwestern Humorists in America because they were out on the out on the Mississippi, and there was a whole bunch of them telling kind of folksy frontier stories. Um, a woman, Marietta Holly, sold as many books <clears throat> as Mark Twain did. They had the same publisher. They had largely the same audience. They had the same illustrator. And, of course, Mark Twain is still remembered today as the great American humorist of his time. And Marietta Holly's books, though insanely successful uh, at the time, are no longer in print. And a lot of it comes down to a question of temperament. Mark Twain was a very canny self-promoter. He had that kind of what we would call today unearned white male confidence, where right, he would right. go on the road and do monologues on stages in front of the crowned heads of Europe, and you know, he'd just promote himself tirelessly as a storyteller. And Marietta Holly did not want to do that. She built herself a, a, quiet, uh, a quiet little country place in upstate New York, and she stayed there and wrote her beloved Samantha Allen books in peace and famous feminists and suffragettes would beg her to come to their conventions and she would be like no i just want to write about samantha you know she preferred the life of the mind and as a result um you know and of course the people assembling the, the comedy canon were all white men right and and as a result we remember mark twain and right. we don't remember marietta holly although her jokes her books were uh, successful and her jokes are still very funny right I know you did an extraordinary amount of research for this book and talked to many, many people. Is it still tough for women out there in comedy? Is it still male-dominated? We do see a lot more uh, powerful women out there now, but is it, is it still top-heavy? It is. Um, you know, now that we see above-the-line female celebrity comedians like 
Tina Fey and Amy Schumer. Um, we can tell things are getting better, but things are still not great, um, particularly in comedy clubs. Uh, female comedians have told me that local comedy clubs are still, you know, regional comedy clubs are still just, you know, the, the, the worst kind of misogyny in the act is kind of expected and chortled at by a largely male crowd and their long-suffering girlfriends and wives, I guess. Right. And, uh, and in fact, comedy clubs and festivals will still have all-male plates, almost without a second thought. Um, the idea that women are less funny was deeply ingrained in at least American comedy culture, and it seems to be uh, a difficult idea to shake. Right, right. And so during that extensive research that you did, what surprised you the most in the, in the history and, and how things have changed? Uh, I think one thing that surprised me is just how many things today we assume are funny were never funny until recently, within our lifetime. Um, until the mid-1960s, uh, pretty much all ad agencies agreed that advertising should not be funny. The customer might laugh at the joke but forget about the product. Um, so that was the conventional wisdom, never have a funny ad. And, of course, in our era, nobody would believe that because it's been so thoroughly turned on its head. Mm-hmm. The same for politics. Political candidates did not used to go on chat shows or uh, you know, utilize comedy as a campaigning and a trick and a trick of governance. You know, the idea that um, Bill Clinton was the one who shook that up in the late 80s and early 90s when he, he actually resuscitated his political career after a disastrous convention speech by going on Johnny Carson's show and playing saxophone in the band and ruefully being self-deprecating about his lousy speech. And within three days, everybody had said, oh, this is great. He has a sense of humor about it. And he was back from the wilderness. Right. And everyone suddenly realized this is how American politics is going to work now. Mm. Everybody's going to have to be funny and chummy all the time. And so do you have a favorite story? You share some great stories in here, but do you have a favorite story that you'd like to share with us? Uh, like the data point that's the funniest for me is uh, like watching airline safety videos get funny. You know, they used to be these very serious pamphlets that would tell you how to use the oxygen mask and mm. the, where your life vest was. And I took these definitely seriously as a child. And uh, it's come to the point today where these videos are all um, elaborate musical numbers or they're kind of wacky comedy sketches. And I remember flying on Delta a few years ago where the safety video was actually based on a series of internet memes and it starred the faces you might recognize from these memes if you're a if you're a teenager or a college student and the, as a result the safety instructions were kind of incomprehensible and there's this older couple sitting next to me and one of them says what is going on here like they couldn't even tell they were watching the safety video because delta <laughs> had larded the thing with so many bizarre jokes borrowed from the internet uh, joke du jour Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Luckily, the plane did not crash. No lives were lost. It's <laughs> yeah, a hilarious like, video. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I sometimes write, uh, I've written a lot of TV commercials over the years and, and training videos and stuff like that. And if you're not getting the message across, <laughs> it's not working no matter how funny it is or how well written it is. <laughs> the, the airline would say, hey, this is just the way to get eyeballs up there. You've got to do it nowadays. <laughs> this is how you get people to pay attention. Yeah. But I don't know if it always works. Yeah. So the book is called Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. What do you hope uh, readers will take away from the book? I just hope it starts a conversation. We all love to laugh and we all love jokes. It's deeply innate in us. Um, And it's not, you know, it's kind of a hard sell to tell people, hey, what if there's too many jokes? What if we're telling jokes that are not good for us as a people? Um, That's not a take I've seen much. So I hope that it starts a conversation and gets people smarter than me thinking seriously about what are the trade-offs of having quippy banter be essentially the only voice of our culture because it's not too late to decide we 
We don't want to be funny all the time. Right, right. Well, you end the book. That's uh, a great segue. <laughs> you end the book with, um, with on, on kind of a serious note, really. You say that we can look for chances to talk about things we enjoy, not just ridicule the things we don't. And um, I'm paraphrasing here. And we can skip the affectionate jabs and roasts sometimes and just tell the people we love how much they mean to us. So I think you end it on an important note, too. Yeah, I feel like that, that's a kind of sincerity and a warm kind of heartfelt voice that I am less comfortable with than I should be just because the dominant rhythms of everything else is this kind of light, airy, witty banter. And, of course, we can all do that, whether we're funny or not. But sometimes it's a challenge to, like, keep a handle on the, the, the other muscles, you know, sincerity and warmth. Right, right. Well, Ken Jennings, I thank you for being with us. The book's a great read. Uh, I mean, you go back right to Caveman Days uh, through the history of comedy and loads of examples and tons of research in there. Um, so it makes it super interesting. I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me. And the book, again, is called Planet Funny. You can find out more about uh, Ken and his books at ken-jennings.com. Ken-jennings.com. All right, please stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicky partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicky today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. What's summer without a good book? Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Join us for our summer reading selection, Hot Off the Press. We'll have something for everyone, from fiction to nonfiction, love to whore, children to octogenarians. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair or Facebook, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Mondays at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Paws has the dog or cat of your dreams, just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967, because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 
50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Listen to podcasts of past shows at conversationslive.net. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And I said at the top of the hour, we were talking about the two C words that I think make life interesting and fun. Comedy, we just covered. And now we're going to look at creativity. My guest is founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a software analytics firm whose uh, clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, and the list goes on. He's been on the 30 under 30 lists for both Inc. and Forbes. And his new book is called The Creative Cure. How, the Creative Curve, excuse me. How to develop the right idea at the right time. Alan Gannett, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, I typed up my notes wrong there. I knew it was the creative curve. <laughs> <laughs> but the cure sounds good, too. We'll have to retitle it. Well, it is. It, it is almost like a creative <laughs> cure, having read it. Um, so let's just begin with uh, how you got interested in this, because it's an interesting story. You're C- founder and CEO of TrackMaven, and uh, so you gather data for uh, companies and, and help them reach their clients in a more effective manner. How did that translate to you wanting to write a book on creativity? Yeah, so the book is all about this question of whether or not, and if so, how, can we actually learn to become more creative? And I'd always grown up with this notion of creativity as something that's learnable and nurturable. And, you know, my company is all based around finding patterns in the marketing data of big brands and helping them use that to better connect with their audiences and figure out the right stories to tell and to whom and when. And I realized probably about four years ago, you know, I talked to creatives, and I would talk to marketers or really entrepreneurs, anyone. And I realized that I was actually in this minority. Most people had this notion of creativity as this fixed thing. There's, you know, you're either Mozart or you're not. You're either a genius or you're a normie. And that for me was kind of, you know, took me back a little bit. And I'm at heart a stubborn kid from New Jersey, and I got a little frustrated because I kept hearing this. And so the book really came out of this frustration and a desire to really get this message across that you know creativity we've been studying for 40 years in the sciences and we actually know a lot about it and what we know is that you can get better at it right right you begin the book saying we've all been told a lie about the nature of creativity because our culture has perpetuated that myth that creative success is the result of sudden inspiration a bolt of lightning from whomever whatever muse is sending it down to us yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, these famous stories that have been told and retold, like, you know, J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, she was struck with, you know, a bolt of lightning and the idea, and then, you know, look, she's this billionaire, and the reality is she was on a train, she had the idea for Harry and a couple of the characters, and she then spent five years writing the first book, five years. There was an interview she did once for a television interviewer, and she showed the interviewer a box of all 50 different versions of chapter one of book one. Mm. So this sort of fantastical story we have is really the story of hard work, not the story of sudden insights. It's almost insulting, actually. Yeah. Why do you think we do that, though? It's almost like we want a band-aid solution for everything these days, including that kind of creativity. Well, I think there's a bunch of really interesting things at work. I think at the end of the day, we like heroes in our culture, and we like the idea in the same way we, you know, um, 
you think about mythologies and all those sorts of things, like we like those stories. They're fun, they're interesting, they're engaging. And I think they're also at one level hopeful. See, I think they're dangerous, but I think at one level they're also hopeful that if it's really easy for some people, then, you know, there might be something that's really easy for me. We talk a lot about passion. There was a study that came out yesterday from Stanford about how dangerous the pursuit of passion is because so many people give that advice, you know, find what you're mm-hmm. passionate about, find what you're passionate about. I think that's really code word for find something that's easy at the start. And there isn't really anything that's easy at the start. You know, the only thing that's easy at the start is video games because they're designed to be that way. The reality is when you look at stories of great creators, like look at Mozart, for example, you know, if you watch the movie Amadeus, you think he, you know, popped out of the womb and started playing the piano. But the real story is when he was three years old, he basically had a helicopter dad who told him he had to become a great musician, hired him the best music teachers in all of Europe, and then he practiced three hours, seven days a week. Yeah. as a little kid. And so he wrote his first truly original piece of music when he was 17, which sounds impressive. That's after 14 years practicing three hours every day with the best music teachers in all of Europe under the conditional love of a helicopter dad. So that's not the story of you know, magical talent, but not a particularly inspiring story either. Right. Well, let's, let's look at um, the story of Paul McCartney as well, because I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, I was just a little kid, but all my cousins who were <laughs> older than me were like obsessed with the Beatles and stuff. Um, and yesterday um, was, became quite an obsession with Paul McCartney from reading your story in the book. So yesterday is the most recorded song in history. Paul McCartney wrote it. Paul has the record for the most number one single. And... The mythology around that story is that he woke up from a dream with the song. And this has been told and retold as part of the sort of texture of the Beatles' history. But the reality, again, is yesterday was the result of a lot of hard work. He actually dreamed up just six notes, and he then spent 20 months finishing the song. He became so obsessive with it that the other Beatles and his managers were like just annoyed and wanted him to stop working on it. He didn't have the lyrics till all the way at the end. For a long time, he used his placeholder lyrics, some lines about scrambled eggs, because one time when he was working on it, someone <laughs> offered him scrambled eggs. And so, you know, yesterday is another one of these examples where it's one of these famous sort of historical games of telephone of Paul McCartney, you know, dreamed up the song yesterday. And the reality is he spent almost two years working on it in a back-breaking fashion in a way that annoyed his friends. Right, right. So it kind of... Uh Let's talk a little bit about the creative curve. The, the title of the book is The Creative Curve. And you've come up with this curve, which you say, um, you know, if somebody would say, oh, they're a creative genius, you'd say they've actually completed this creative curve. Um, there's a very strong correlation between what seems familiar and yet what's original. So talk to us about that, if you would. Yeah, so one of the things when we talk about creativity that's really important to understand is that there's actually two types of creativity. There's uppercase C creativity and there's lowercase C creativity. Uppercase C creativity is actually what we want. That's creating things that are both new and valuable. Lowercase C is just creating new things. But we don't want to just create something new. We don't want to just throw paint on a canvas and have it be not recognized. We want to create things that people love and adore and pay for. And to do that, you need to really understand what people find valuable. And The issue there is that that's a social construct, right? What we find valuable is what we agree is valuable. And so that seems like an insurmountable problem. How do you possibly wrap your head around that as a creator? How do you develop the right idea at the right time? And what was really interesting with the book and the research was when you talk to academics in this space, 
what you find is there's actually a ton of really fascinating and well-grounded findings in what drives human taste and human preference. And it really comes down to the fact that our brain does this two types of pattern matching that are really important. One is that our brain is constantly seeking out novelty. It's constantly seeking out the new. And this is because we were at one point hunter-gatherers. We needed new sources of food, reward, energy. And so we're constantly looking for new things, right? If you saw a random berry in a field and you were a hungry hunter-gatherer, you would eat it. It's a potential new meal. But then we have this other urge that seems like a contradiction. We also seek out the familiar because we think it's safer. We are fearful of the unfamiliar. We're fearful if we were a cave dweller of the cave we've never slept in before versus the cave we've slept in many times. It's the same cozy feeling you get when you come back home from a vacation. And even though your hotel was really nice, there's something nice about being home. So we also have this desire for the familiar because it feels safe. It feels like we're not going to be harmed. Right. And so these two things, the fear of the unfamiliar and the pursuit of novelty, seem like a contradiction. But really, what they lead to is this really fascinating relationship where it turns out that the ideas we most like are the ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. Right. They're familiar enough to feel safe, and they're novel enough to be interesting. And when you put it on a chart, they've done all these studies, and they find this effect at the individual level, the group level, and the population level. When you show people things multiple times, what you find is this inverted U relationship where at first when people see something new or experience it like a song, they don't really like it. Then the more they experience it, the more they like it. Then at a certain point, their novelty seeking wins out and they get bored of it. And then they like it less and less with each additional exposure. You probably know this from when you've listened to you know, new pop songs. And um, scientists call this the inverted U-shaped relationship between familiarity um, and preference, which I think is a bad book title. So I rebranded <laughs> it The Creative Curve. But basically what these great creators are so elegantly able to do is to create the idea to the right point of this curve so that it's familiar enough to be safe, novel enough to be interesting, and they're able to do that again and again and again. And yeah. that's the art of what we really want to do when we talk about creativity. Yes, excellent. And you used uh, Paul McCartney's Yesterday as an example to open the book there because uh, that's when he played those six notes, they seemed familiar to him, so familiar to him, even though they were novel, but they were so familiar to him that he went to many people to say, hey, have you heard this before? Am I ripping it off from someone? Yeah, he was worried that he had plagiarized it. And, you know, it's interesting as historians have sort of found the story of yesterday fascinating. And, you know, over time, what we sort of realize is that, you know, the melody for yesterday, the main melody dreamed up is sort of a reinterpretation of Ray Charles's version of Georgia on my mind. And that's not surprising because Paul McCartney was a huge Ray Charles fan. And, when they were a cover band, they played lots of Ray Charles music. And so that's not shocking or surprising, nor is that bad. That's just part of how creativity works is we take ideas, we reshuffle them, we mix them, um, and they evolve. And that's how new creative products start. We won't actually like things that are radically new. Like no one wants to watch a nine-hour movie with no protagonist, and no plot line. Like right. we actually like things that fit within the archetype but have novel twists to them. Right. Well, we need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I, I'm going to ask you about the faulty notion of the 10,000 hours to become an expert, because I've always had an issue with that myself. <laughs> uh, my guest is Alan Gannett. His book is called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. 
Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, thanks in part to Darcy Pariso and Stacy Lewis, we cover the world of animals. This week, July 1st, we'll be educating and entertaining the human animal. I'm real excited to welcome back Morley Venkatro, director of the Ananda Yoga Teacher Training Program and soon-to-be PhD. He'll tell us all about the recent scientific findings on how yoga helps reduce inflammation, which is making lots of waves in the scientific and yoga communities. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 11. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. What's summer without a good book? Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Join us for our summer reading selection, Hot Off the Press. We'll have something for everyone, from fiction to nonfiction, love to whore, children to octogenarians. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair or Facebook, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Mondays at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Join us live every Monday at noon on Alternative Talk 1150 or stream live from conversationslive.net. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. We are talking creativity in this segment with Alan Gannett, who went on a journey to discover uh, what's the difference between something that soars and sinks, but in much more detail than that. Mm-hmm. Um, his new book is called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. And um, I wanted to talk, Alan, about um, the faulty notion of the 10,000 hours, because, you know, there's so much on the internet about, hey, you want to become an expert, you've just got to put 10,000 hours into your topic and you're going to be an expert on it. And I've always had an issue with that. And you kind of discuss that in the book, too. So let's talk about that. So, you know, when we talk about creativity, you know, there's two elements. One is timing. Do you have the right idea at the right time? And the other is execution, technical skill. And when it comes to technical skill, you know, there's sort of two ways people think about it. They either have adopted the you know, faulty Mozart idea of it, which is that you're born with it Mm -hmm. and you either have it or you don't. Or they've adopted the uh, Malcolm Gladwell notion of the 10,000 hours rule, which has become very popularized. And, you know, I'll ask people when I do a talk if they've heard of it and, you know, 95% of the room raises their hand. And it's the idea that with 10,000 hours of practice, anyone can become good at anything. And here's the problem. That notion, while sort of directionally correct, is actually quite wrong. So, that is a notion that's based on research by a man named K. Anders Ericsson, 
who's a really famous researcher in the field of talent development. And I interviewed him for my book, and you know, he gave me this quote, which is in the book, which is that Gladwell misread my paper, period. And the problem is that Gladwell gets two things wrong. First, what the research showed was that 10,000 hours was the average across skills. See, some skills, like playing the piano, have lots of people doing them. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. So it takes these days about 25,000 hours to become world-class at piano. But there's other skills like digit memorization, which is now a thing that people do competitions for. <laughs> and um, you know that only takes about 400 hours because it's newer, less people do it. And that kind of makes sense. But then there's a second bigger issue. The entire research was not at all about practice. It was about something called deliberate practice, which is actually quite different. See, it's practice is if I want to, you know, practice, um, you know, basketball, I play a game of basketball. And that helps me build it into my rote memory. It becomes more and more subconscious. But that's not actually what we want to do when we want to get better. When we want to get better at something, we actually have to keep it conscious. We have to keep aware of all the little actions we're taking. And so deliberate practice is breaking down a big macro skill into these tiny little micro skills. Like, you know, instead of playing basketball, it'll be left-handed mid-court dribbling. And I'm going to do that over and over again because that's how you actually learn what are the things that I need to fix, I need to tweak. So you see this with these great talents is that they're always masters of deliberate practice. And there's these really interesting studies that were done, for example, that found um, with violinists, for example, number of hours of practice was not correlated to achievement. It was number of hours of purposeful practice. And that is such a huge difference in how people learn. And he just gets it wrong. Right, right. I, I would totally agree with that. And I know you've done extensive research on that, too. Um, so it kind of goes back in some ways to what I, I used to have a boss who used to say, look, you can have five years of experience or one year of experience five times over. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I try to always remember that as I begin a new year or a new project. Let's not keep just repeating the same experience. Let's have a different experience here. Well, it's like it's why, you know, you've probably driven your car for 10,000 hours, but you're not a NASCAR driver. It's the yeah. same commute. You just lose track of time because it's in your rote memory. If you wanted to be a NASCAR driver, you would practice very, very sharp left-handed turns. Right, right. I want to touch on dopamine because um, mm. we've talked a lot, you know, through various shows with various neuro neuroscientists and, and uh, health professionals about dopamine, um, which is commonly, and you say uh, m most commonly misunderstood as the happy, uh, as the happy drug, uh, as the happy hormone. Um, but you say pop, pop psychology has it wrong. Yeah. So this has been, you know, if you ever go to any conferences and watch keynote speakers, we always talk about, you know, dopamine, the pleasure neurotransmitter. You need to create it with your audience. And the issue is that that's not quite right. Really what dopamine does is dopamine is the motivation neurotransmitter. And it happens to be that we're motivated when we experience pleasure. And so dopamine helps us sort of set patterns into memories. When, you know, I eat X, I feel Y. And Y is often pleasure. But when they've blocked dopamine receptors in drug addicts, drug addicts still want drugs. And so this idea that dopamine is this, you know, is a thing where all pleasure comes from and is a sort of, you know, fanciful tale of pop psychology and really doesn't help us understand where the thing that we actually want to get better at understanding is why are we motivated to do certain things? And that's where a lot of these things around novelty and familiarity come about, where 
novelty drives a lot of dopamine activity because we want to explore those things. We want to see, is this a potential source of reward? It may not be, but we still are interested in it. We still are attracted to it. Yeah. So let's look at the key to understanding commercial success because most people want to sell their work at some Mm -hmm. point. Um, So we've only got about a minute left, unfortunately. I could talk to you for hours on this topic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you can condense it into that for us, I'd appreciate it. So the important thing if you want to create an idea is you have to be technically skilled. You have to have that right idea at the right time. So you have to know what's the right blend of the familiar and the novel. And the key to doing that at the end of the day is really going deep in your creative niche. So you see the biggest creators are very active consumers of culture. They consume every creative product they can get their hands on. They want to see what their audience is going to know and what's familiar and not familiar. You also need to have distributions. In the book, I talk about how you need certain types of people in your creative community. And third, you need to listen to your audience. And so in the book, I discuss basically how you find these best creators. They're very iterative, and they get a lot of feedback because they understand their job as a creator is not to create for themselves. I think that's a fanciful notion that a lot of aspiring creators hold. But the people who are actually creative achievers, they're very focused on that social contract with the audience and creating for them. And that's some of the key elements to commercial success. But that was a very condensed version. (laughs) Yes, yes, very condensed. You go into in great detail in the book. So I can see, Alan, why you were on Forbes and Inc.'s 30 under 30 list. Um, Great work, great research here. Um, And so basically, if people are listening to this, they're feeling uninspired, stifled, creatively infertile. Uh, This is the book for them because you say they're just doing it wrong. We can all do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. You can find more about um, Alan Gannett and his work at thecreativecurve.com, thecreativecurve.com. All right, that brings us right to the end of today's show. We pushed it to the end there. You can find me at 800-495-7617 if you have comments or feedback on the show today. And uh, you can also find me at info at conversationslive.net and uh, on Twitter and Facebook. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.